Um, and I'll give you a little recap to catch you up just in case you've missed a couple weeks. And, you know, I know it's summer and things. And um, uh, we have a study guide that we produced. I don't know if I have any paper ones. They might be somewhere floating around here. We made the kind of a bookmark thing that has, but it's also on our website. You can go see it. It tells you what we're going to be studying and some background information. You can either print it out or you, we have some somewhere around here that you can put in. A, if you use a paper Bible, you can actually stick it in there and, like, use it like a bookmark. And since most people don't do that anymore, we have it on our website, and you can just look at it and reference it for fun. But this has been a super, a super story to go through. It's kind of intense, kind of a good, it's like, uh, you know, you think summer, maybe we'll do something laid back or, you know, talk about movies or something. But we just instead accidentally did this, and it was at the Lord's guidance, I think, because probably if we had thought a lot about it, we might have put this somewhere else. But we finished up the book of Ephesians a couple weeks ago, and in the very last chapter, I shared this last week, there's this part where Paul's writing, and he puts this, uh, put that up there. I think it has like, did I delete it? Uh, put the thing on the screen. Put the thing, I don't have it in my notes. Is it not there? Okay. Well, anyway, in the, in the chapter 6 of Ephesians, he says several times repeatedly, which I, th- I guess I deleted the slide, uh, where he talks about, now that you've gotten all this message of Ephesians that I just sent you, Ephesian people, I want you to stand for the faith. And then as you stand, I want you to stand. And then he says, and then to stand, and then in the armor of God part, he kind of goes into it. So there's this repeated emphasis on the word stand, and to stand for the faith. And not like hide, not run away, not chicken out, not, you know, not disengage from society, but to stand, you know, and then it's not easy to do. And he goes into the whole armor of God imagery, which means it's like a battle, a spiritual battle that's a real and actual battle. And then as soon as we finish the Ephesians, we go into the story of Elijah and Elisha, and you see in this story the prophets, Elijah, and then, which today we introduce the other guy, Elisha. They're not the same person. They're two different people. And... Uh, they're prophets, and they're, act- they're doing exactly what he talks about at the end of the book of Ephesians. They are standing for God at a time when society's gone crazy. And so some of us can feel very like, I can connect to that. You know, society seems to be a little crazy. And, but God's not saying, so what I want you to do is run away terrified. <laughs> He's saying, I want you to stand. And that's what these guys do, okay? So just a little bit of recap. Um, this story is found, it spans over chapters of 1st and 2nd Kings in your Bible. Um, and you'll see that we're going through 1st Kings, the end of that kind of today. Uh, Elijah and Elisha are serving as prophets. And these prophets, we had this on our study sheet. Prophets in the Bible are a person who hears the word from God and speaks on behalf of God. Uh, they, call, they call out idolatry and injustice and they challenge the people to repent and follow the Torah. These are kind of the main qualities you see prophets fulfilling. Speaking words from God to God's people. Okay, They're not just making stuff up. It's very important that that's the thing. And there's a pattern that you see throughout these stories in the books of, in this First and Second Kings with Elijah and Elisha where Israel does something evil. God acts with justice and God sends the messenger of the prophet and then God reigns over the evil situation. And you're going to see that some today. We saw it seriously big time last, last week. Um, also, just remember, Israel at this point, like David was the king, and then Solomon was the king, and then the, the kingdom kind of falls apart or breaks in half. And like 10 of the tribes go north. They call themselves Israel. The, the two southern tribes call themselves Judah. And when we're talking about right now, you're going to see both those kingdoms interacting with each other. So if you read through the books of kings, and stuff, you'll see reference to the king of Judah, and they'll say, like, that guy became king at this time of the king of Israel 
was at like, he, like, this king became king of Judah when this guy was 15. And you're like, what? So they keep cross-referencing each other as like timeline, you know. And it helps, it can get confusing. It gets confusing to me. Um, they're all the same. They were the original uh, Hebrew people, but they're divided at this point. And the other thing that you need to know just about the context is the kings were generally doing bad. I mean, there's some that did good. The ones we're talking about today, uh, like, there kind of starts to be this recurring refrain. If you read through kings kind of in like a sitting or a couple sittings, you start to seem like, yeah, and he also did bad like his ancestor. And, you know, God was really upset about that. And then the main one to talk about is like Ahab right now, the king of Israel that Elijah's dealing with, is bad. And then his wife Jezebel is very bad. These are the technical biblical descriptions of their character. <laughs> but if you remember Ahab, it says in 1 Kings 16 that he did more to anger the Lord than any of his predecessors. That's not good. And that's what Elijah's dealing with, okay? And Elijah, just remember Kevin talked a couple weeks ago, God's had enough of the idolatry. Because Jezebel, who's very bad, has brought in all of this idol worship, very, very like vulgar, bad stuff. Where God had said, you're my people that I've set apart to be revealing my nature and revealing God to the world. And instead, you've started to honor and celebrate all, of this, all these idols, credit them for things that God had done, and bring them even into the temple. It's just really profane stuff. And a lot of it was her idea. And he was the husband. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. This, whatever makes you happy, this kind of thing. You know? and, and God's had enough of it. He sends Elijah to tell him, hey, because of what you've done, there's going to be a drought for like three years. He didn't say exactly how long. He's like, there's going to be a drought till I say there's not going to be one. And God, you know, does that. And then you see Elijah goes and, you know, had some interaction with some people, the widow and all this kind of stuff. And then last week we had like kind of the main Elijah story. And I told the youth that if we go to like youth camp with Springs Church and they have like Bible trivia day and they ask him about Elijah, this is the story you have to know and to not embarrass me, that Elijah goes back to the king and says, okay, God says it's going to rain again. But before that, let's have a little challenge. You bring all your fake gods and all their prophets, and you set up an altar and don't, put everything on. Put the meat on it and everything, the wood and meat. But then don't light the fire, though, and I'll do the same thing. You have your guys call on their gods, and I'll call on Yahweh, the God of the, the God, Israel's true God, the true God of the universe. Whichever one answers that's, we'll just say that's who God is, right? And they go, that sounds like a great deal. And then they, they set up for, you go first. And then they try for like all day. Nothing happens. There's just 450 of these guys. Nothing happens. And Elijah's like, why don't you pour water on mine? And he pours water on it three times. So much water, they like fills up the trench. They dug around it. And then he prays one prayer in front of everyone. Like all of Israel's there. The king's there, everybody. And he says, you know, reveal yourself, Lord, that you are God and that I'm your prophet. And I am, this is, you know, that you're calling everyone, you're turning everyone's heart back to you, he says. And God, that one prayer, God, and he consumes not only the offering, but the wood and the stone and everything. It's like, it's gone. And everybody kind of freaks out in a good way. They're like, oh, yeah, here's my kind of 1950s Bible illustration of that. So God does this fire and it freaks everybody out. But God makes his point. He's like, it's just like we saw in Exodus when we were going through that. God would challenge these false gods and he would reveal, like, hey, I'm not playing, I'm not kidding. Like, I am God. And then they would go, oh my gosh. And then all those, the Israel was like, they fell on their face and there's like, God, only he is God and it works. And it's like super. Uh, and then the rain comes back. They, they get rid of all the bad prophets. They kill them all. It's like, it's, and then the, the, like the rain comes back. And that's where we start today, which I would call a high point. Like, if you were Elijah, and God had just sent you to the king who you had said a couple years ago, it's not going to rain. It didn't rain. I don't know if you've noticed, but you can't control the weather. Neither can I. 
So if God told you, go tell somebody it's not going to rain, you have to be pretty, like, trusting in God to do that because you can't, like, fake your way through it if it doesn't work, okay? Well, he does. And then he says, now go back to him and tell him, but then we're going to do this grand, you know, this, this whole thing that happens. All I'm trying to say is it worked, right? And if, I'm not sure that Elijah really cared about this, but he looked good. Like, he, he said, show that you're God by yourself, and I'm your prophet. I'm speaking on your behalf. And God did that. So he's vindicated the whole thing. High point, right? And that's where we find ourselves today. So Ahab, the bad guy, went back to his very bad wife. In 1 Kings 19, verses 1 and 2, he says this, And Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, which means you're going to be dead by tomorrow. You know. So what do you think Elijah does? I mean, he's like at a high point. He's like, bring it on, right? He's like, you try to kill me. I mean, verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I'm going to read that again. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I just want you to think about this. We're going to come back. What I'm going to do today is we're going to work through the whole story quickly, and I'm going to come back and make a couple key points that you need to take away from this. So in, in verse 4, while, so Elijah, he goes to Beersheba, and he... And he um, he leaves his servant there, and, while he, and then he goes by, by himself into the wilderness. And Beersheba is an important place where in Genesis, you see this, this place comes up again where the patriarchs, it, it reminds everybody of the promises that God had given. And so it's kind of like you go into a safe place. You know? But then he leaves his guy there, and he goes out into the wilderness by himself. And he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fe- fell asleep. And then... What you see happen, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because we have a lot of chapters today. Um, an angel comes twice and gives him food and stuff. He's like, you have a journey ahead of you. And then he sends him on a 40-day journey through the desert to the horror of the Mount Sinai where, like, you remember in Exodus where, like, Moses was. And the whole, there was a lot of stuff that happened there, if you remember. And a thing to note about that, uh, if you remember a couple months ago, I mentioned in, there was a couple times in the Bible where some extreme fasting happened, where there was like no food and water for some extreme period of time. And I said, there's one that Elijah does. This is the thing I was talking about. I will say this. Though I believe fasting should be a regular part of every Christian person's life, an extreme fast of this kind has to be supernaturally ordained because your body, can, you can't do that. But, so I wouldn't say like, well, I'm going to be holy like Elijah and just not eat and drink for... 40 days, and I mean, that's not holy, that's just dumb. But if an angel shows up to you and tells you twice, you should eat this food that I'm giving you because you have a journey here, then we can talk. But if there's not an angel showing up, you probably don't, you see what I'm saying? Okay, good. But if you say 40 days, that sounds kind of interesting. Doesn't that remind me of something? And it's like, yes, when numbers show up, um, not all the time, but a lot of time, they're included on purpose for a meaning. And this 40, this this, this has a lot of biblical meaning, and it is supposed to make you think back towards, you know, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert and in the centrality of Mount Sinai to that. And so he goes all the way back to this place where God had had covenant. And you remember, we just went through this in Exodus, and it's very important to meet with God, right? And he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. 
The Lord said, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So he's on the mountain of God, and God says, go out and stand, because my presence is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, fire. Remember Moses spoke to the Lord in a burning bush? Fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elisha heard it, he put his cloak over, over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death. To death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, king over Aram, which he's not the king. All right, So he's like, anoint a different guy as king over this country. Anoint Jehu, Son of Nimshi is king over Israel. If you remember, Ahab is king over Israel. He's telling him to anoint different people as king. This is, you have to hear that part. And anoint Elisha, with S-H, son of Shaphat, from Abel, I don't know, whatever, to succeed as you, you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And then listen to this. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah just told God twice, I'm the only one left. And God answers by giving him instructions about people he needs to go anoint as king and prophet. And then he tells him, there's 7,000 other people. We're going to come back and talk about this, so don't think I'm just jumping over that. But um, so, he, so he does what he says. In First Kings 9, verse 19 through 21, I think I have this in there. Um, so Elijah went, from, went there and found Elisha, just like he was told, son of Shaphat, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. And what have I, um, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back and took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them and burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat over and gave it to the people. And they ate it, and, he's, and then he set out to follow Elijah his, and became his servant. So Elijah now kind of adopts Elisha as his, like, trainee. Or if you're, like, a Star Wars person, it's like his Padawan. Like when Obi-Wan is training Anakin. It doesn't go well that time. This one goes well. But if you're thinking... Uh, so this is an important step for Elijah because it's like, you know, I'm all alone. And immediately there's, he's got help. It's not all alone, you know, and it's by God's ordination. And uh, it's a reminder to us that God's activity never stops. And he, and he uses people to do his work through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's who he chooses. Because I'm not sure. I mean, the names are similar. But I'm pretty sure or relatively certain that Elijah at least, at least didn't think of Elisha in this way. Or maybe didn't even know he existed. You know, we look at him as like a team because they become a team and it's very important and we'll look into that as we get into it. But Elijah standing before God twice says, I'm the only one left. And he's like, no, nah, nah, I, got, I got people, you know, and I want you to go get this guy. He almost has the same name as you. It's kind of interesting, you know, this kind of thing. But you also might be going, this sounds, some of this stuff sounds familiar to me. And if it does, we're going to talk, I want to share you with what I'm going to call the Bible nerd minute, which I have a slide for, don't I? There we go. Bible nerd moment. (laughs) 
If you're like, this kind of sounds familiar, but different than what I remember. And you are right. You're thinking of Luke 9, okay? And uh, this chapter is intentionally written this way, where uh, we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark this fall, and you'll see it in the Mark version. But in Luke, the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah come and talk to him. It, like talking to Jesus. Like that actually happened. That's kind of strange. And the, and the disciples thought, leave my moment thing up there. I want that up there. There we go. This is my Bible nerd moment. The more you know. And so you find that in Luke 9 where Elijah's there talking to Jesus, right? And then last week I talked to you about, you know, the fire falls down and consumes everything. And I talked about we like to apply that outwardly. You know, like God consuming all the bad people. Not like me, but all the bad people that I don't like on Facebook or something, you know. And God vindicating me in front of everyone. And I was saying, that's not really how we needed to apply that last week. And we walked through that. And I meant to, and it was in my notes, and I skipped over it. But also in Luke 9, you see where Jesus goes into Samaria. And he's not really welcome there, because they know he's going on to Jerusalem. And so his two, two of his disciples say, hey... <laughs> want us to call down fire on these guys and burn them up? And it says, Jesus rebuked them. That's all it says. Jesus rebuked them. And it's intentionally meant and worded to kind of make you think about this. We have Elisha up here. Elisha's on the mind. You go into Samaria. They don't get accepted. Let's call down fire and burn them up too. Isn't that the kind of stuff you do? And Jesus is like, no. And when, he, when we think like that, this is Jesus going, no. You need to get that in there. Because we, it's so easy to want to just, let's just call down fire and burn them up, you know? And Jesus is saying, no. But then it goes on. And in Luke 9, you sit to see this other thing where Jesus is talking about, and in the Bible I have, and probably maybe yours, I don't know, it, like they break up these little story parts into chunks and they'll give them a title. And this one says, like, the cost of following Jesus. And he starts having these interactions with people. And you'll start to say, I felt like I've heard a story like this. You have. Verse 39, or sorry, chapter 9, verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. It's kind of like Elisha, right? Like, I need to go say goodbye to my family. You know, and then he's like, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, but let me go back and say, to my, say goodbye to my family. Now, that's exactly what Elisha said. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't bring up the plow. Jesus did. So he's saying, I need to go. And don't, if you sit there and go, do you think that they knew what he was talking about? Yes, they knew what he was talking about. Like, these people didn't have TV, and they knew their Bible really well. You know, Some of them had memorized most of it. And it's possible to do that, okay? We just watch you know, shows instead. So not that that's necessarily wrong. It's just, yes, they knew what he was talking about. And yes, that is less good use of your time than memorizing the Bible. Memorizing the Bible is better. So Jesus brings up putting the hand to the plow. And so what is the meaning of all this that Jesus is including this for all the rest of us, right? Okay, so Elisha, Elijah comes, puts his cloak around. He's like, I need to go say goodbye to people. He's like, yes, go do that. And then Elisha says goodbye, but he also like takes the, the plow he's got, breaks it up, and burns, the, like he's, he, he burns everything. Like there's nothing for him to go back to. It's pretty extreme, Right? It's good. Like, that's good. Elisha's committed to following Elijah. I'm going to go. I'm going. I burned all my stuff, and I gave all the food to everybody. Like, it's done. It's over, you know? 
And then Jesus is saying, they go, hey, look, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but let me go, go say goodbye to, to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom, you know. And Jesus is not saying hate your family and stuff in the same the way that you might hear the word hate, you know, or that your family doesn't matter, or that he's going to, you know, in some weird OCD way, like, I care about my children, which means I don't, I'm not dedicated to God. That's not at all what he's talking about. And we just talked about being a good father in um, Ephesians, so come on, you know. He's talking about this, and this is going to shock you when you start to see what Elijah and Elisha are doing. Jesus is trying to make the point that following him, following him for all of us, every human being, doesn't matter if you're a Jewish, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter anything. If you're a human being and Jesus is calling you, and he is, he's saying, come follow me. Come live like I live, receive the life that I give, and live in this world the way I do. And they're not going to like it when you do it most of the time, but come do it. This is eternal life here. Following Jesus, eternal life, right? And he says, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. What he's saying is that this kind of devotion that you need to have to follow me is more than what Elisha had, not less, okay? More, not less. And I'm not trying to make, if you go like, oh my gosh, I can't ever, it's like, no, okay, the Holy Spirit empowers you to do this, but he's saying more, not less. So as we go through the story of Elijah and Elisha, if you're always like, well, that's good for them. They're like Bible superheroes, and I'm just a nobody. Remember that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, has told you, he's like, I expect more out of you, not less. Every single one of us. He's not going, well, you're a loser, though. So he's not like that. He's saying, because of what I've done, I want all of you to do, you know, okay, you get it. So that was my Bible nerd moment, but you needed to hear that. And then the story moves on. Now, this, this goes into a couple chapters, which I'm going to paraphrase very quickly for the sake of time. And you need to go and read them because the story kind of diverts away from Elijah, Elisha. But you need to have some of this background so that you can understand what's going on next week. When you're like, Isn't, is that guy dead? What happened? Okay, so here's what happens. So they go off, Elijah and Elisha, to do things. I wrote here, the story moves on. And in 1 Kings 20... Um, uh, uh, the, the, the Ara- Remember how he said, anoint this guy king over Aram. Well, the, the current king is like, a t- the Arameans attack, or they, they threaten to attack, and then they attack. And then the is- God sends the, the word from the prophet to the king, the bad king even, hey, Israel's going to win for God's glory or whatever, but you need to take this seriously. You need to wipe these guys out. And like, it talks about how they have a huge army, and the Israelites have this tiny little thing, and then they attack, and they don't win, and then they, but they don't wipe them out yet, and then the Arameans are like, well, it's because their God's like a a hill country god and ours is our god's like a field god if they fought us in the field we would win and then like so they set up kind of again and they do it again and this time it talks about like this tiny little israeli army this huge army like they get like we're gonna really whoop them out this time and then this whole thing happens israel wins because god said they were going to but um they capture the king the bad king his name's bin hadad instead of killing him and so the prophet uh, comes up and says, you know, you didn't follow God's direction, so now you're going to die. But he didn't die at that moment, you know. So King Ahab keeps going. And in the next story, he wants a guy's vineyard. A guy named Naboth has a vineyard. And he's like, can I have this or buy this from you? Because I'm like the king and everything. The guy's like, well, I mean, it's been in my family for a really long time. I'd really, no, I need to, we need to keep it. And he's like, please. He's like, no. I said, no. And so he's like, goes back. He's like, man, I really wanted that vineyard. And his wife, Jezebel, the really bad person, is like, well, then take it. He's like, well, it's his, you know, and he's like, 
She's like, and? So she concocts this plan, ends up killing the guy and steals it. She's like, hey, he's dead. You can have it. So he's like, oh, cool. I get my thing. Well, Elisha shows up and says, you know, pretty long, like, you're going to die. Because you've done some, like, this is the last thing. Like, now you've really done it. You're going to die. Your wife's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Your whole, your whole family line will be destroyed, and you're no more, basically. God says this. And Ahab, actually, this is an interesting little piece. He kind of repents. He's like, oh, my gosh, I've done wrong. And he repents. And God says to Elijah, he's like, hey, look, see him repenting over here? He's like, so this is all still going to happen, but some of it's going to happen to his kids. Not going to happen. Like, we're going to wipe out his name then, you know. But then, like I told you, the, the kingdoms were separated, right? So the king of Judah shows up. And he's like, hey, you know, we should have more land. And some of these guys over here that we should, like... Remember the Arameans? I mean, these guys, we should, that should be our land. So why don't we go attack them together, though? But I don't know if it's a good idea. We should talk to some prophets. And so they call all these other prophets, and they're like, oh, yeah, you should do that. That's a great idea. And the king, you can read it, the king of, of Judah's like, I'm not, I'm not really buying it. Don't you have any real prophets here? And the king of Israel, Ahab, he's like, well, there's this other guy. Uh, but I don't like him because he always prophesies bad things about me. And they're like, and then the, the other king of Judah is like, you probably should talk to that guy before we do anything. And so they bring him in, and it's not, it's not Elijah. It's a guy named uh, Micaiah, Micaiah, and he uh, comes in, and they're like, okay, should we do this? Is God with us or whatever? And and he's like, yeah, go do it, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, you tell me the truth. And he's like, okay, I'll tell you the truth. And he tells him this whole long thing about he's going to die and everything. And then the king of Israel is like, see, this guy, I don't even. That's why I don't like having him around. He's always telling me bad stuff, you know. And, and so uh, they end up going for it anyway. But the king of Israel, he's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. You, king, why don't you dress up like a king? I'm just going to dress up like a normal guy. And we'll go do this fight thing. It'll be, it'll be cool, I'm sure, you know. And so the other people are like, we need to kill this king of Israel. So they see, like, the king guy. They're like, we should probably kill him. So they go after him, and then when he shouts out, like, a, declaring who he is or something like that, they're like, that's not the right guy. And uh, King Ahab hiding kind of in normal people clothes, just randomly, it says randomly, just gets hit with an arrow or something and dies. Just like God said, you're going to die, you know. And that's kind of where this, this part of the story, this is where the whole, the first kings ends, actually, and the... But he just randomly dies. And then we'll move on in the story later. But <clears throat> you needed to know these interactions that happen. He tries to take a guy's vineyard. They, steal, they kill the guy. You know, <clears throat> they're deepening. It's kind of like you're already in a bad place. You just keep digging and making it worse. You know? And they're battling with people, but they're not following God's instructions. And <clears throat> he ends up dying for it <clears throat> at, God's, at God's word. So it's serious. But I want to go back. And uh, we'll move on from that next week. But I want to go back and make three quick points, very quick, because um, you already heard this story. But you need to hear these points today, um, because we're talking about Elijah and Elisha. And yes, we need to know their surroundings and their context, their interactions with the culture around them. And that's why I took the time to paraphrase those. You can go read them, chapters 19, 20, 21, all this, 22. Uh, but you, we need to look at Elijah in this moment. Because he came out of this thing I was just telling you about, this fire of God falling and this massive like demonstration of the power of God, big time, you know, you know, 
if you were putting out like, let's draw a timeline of the Old Testament, this point would have been on there. This is not like a small thing. This is like, you know, parting the Red Sea with you know, like these are big stories here. You know, and he's just been a part of one of those. And then immediately, the, uh, Jezebel, the bad person, who God Himself has just proven is bad and is not good, and her all her prophets are dead and everything. There's nothing left. You know, you lost. And then that person threatens him and says, "You're gonna, I'm gonna kill you." And you would think, you'd be like, "Bring it on!" Like if God didn't say you can kill me. You're not killing me. You know. But it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And then he goes off and says, God, kill me. Like, I don't even have anything. So he goes from being vindicated publicly by God, not even at his own idea. Like, he didn't ask God for that. God decided to do it. You know? This God-ordained, holy stuff that he's a part of. He sees the fire of God fall from heaven, consume things, amazing things. And then his reaction to the people who lost, who threatened him, is to run away scared and ask God, to kill him, and then when God asks him, what are you doing, two or three times, he's like, I, I'm the only one left. And the weird, the first point is this, this, uh, this discouragement. And the real point is that we can take encouragement from Elijah's discouragement. And what I mean by that is this. Um, <clears throat> How many of you have been discouraged? How many of you have been discouraged right after something awesome? Especially like maybe even with God. Like something awesome with God happens. Maybe it's life transforming. You know, maybe it's like something you're not going to forget for the rest of your life. Maybe you encounter God in this powerful way. Maybe it doesn't look the same as Elijah. Maybe it doesn't even matter. But it was like big deal to you. Like, and in that moment, you're thinking something like, this changes everything. And it does. It does. But emotionally, you're like, this changes everything. And never again will I ever doubt God again. Never again will I ever, for, you know, forsake his name. Or, you know, never again will I not be bold for Jesus. And never again. This is it. It's over. From now on, it's all positive and nothing bad is going to happen in my life. Something like this. And then immediately you go, and then you're like, what did I do wrong? Right? Am I the only person who's like, give me some, like, y'all don't talk enough. So, look at those hands, guys. This is a testimony. So, you go through something with God, something amazing, and then immediately you go through this like terrible place and then you think what did I do wrong and you might even like super despair like he does I'm the only one left and just kill me God there's no point in even living anymore you know to which God could say what what I mean what are you talking about but God if you notice God's response he doesn't even engage really with the the woe is me part of it he just kind of starts giving him instructions he's like I got stuff I need you to do all right you know which in a way is an answer like, none of what you're talking about has anything to do with anything, really, you know. Which might not sound encouraging to you, but trust me, it is. Because the enemy loves to lie to us that, like, you... Okay, <laughs> so you, you have this thing that God does, right? 
God does something in your life. It's real. It's absolutely real. It's transformative. It's powerful. God is good. God does this kind of stuff. God still does the kind of stuff we were just reading about with the fire. I mean, he does this kind of stuff. He changes people's lives, okay? It's not fake. It's real. It's not all emotional, but there's emotions involved, and it happens, and it's real. And then you, you encounter something horrible or whatever. You, forget, you get depressed right afterwards, and you start to think, what did I do? Now, there's this strange implication that could be building in there. You don't see it because you think, this is good, then I did something wrong, and then this happened. Did Elisha do that? No. Okay. Now, if, if you go through something with God and then you turn your back on him and go do bad things and then bad things happen, that's not a, this is not an application place for this story, right? We're talking about, I'm seeking after him bold, and then immediately, blah. What did I do? Okay? And then the thing is, what's hidden in that question is, what did I do to make this happen? And the answer is nothing. Okay? And then it's like, what did I do? And God's like, what? Nothing. When did you think you were doing things? I mean, you're doing what I asked you to do. You know? And so <clears throat> the big encouragement we can take from this is if Elijah's discouraged after that, and we can be discouraged in similar situations, it's okay. It's actually maybe part of the interaction with God in this world right now. Okay, Jesus himself, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, the night before he was crucified on the cross, prayed to God, if there's any possible way for this to pass, take it away. But not my will, but your will be done. Not what did I do? He's like, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, no matter what it is and no matter what it costs and what it feels like. That's the response to this. But it's not to start going in. There's this, you hear, the enemy wants you to stop. And waste time evaluating, is that even real? Maybe I was, did I, what did I, where did it start going wrong? What did, all of this is just a waste of time. That's why God doesn't really engage with it when he's talking with Elijah. He's just like, all right, let's keep going. I got you some things I need you to do. And it helps get him out of it. You, we need to help each other through this, you know. But the experience of it is not an indication that God has forsaken you or that you've done all this wrong stuff. Take encouragement from Elijah's discouragement. The second thing is hearing God's voice, to hear God's voice. There's this chain of events that happens, and they're not just nothing. They're, they have a lot of meaning into all these. This great wind shows up, and it says, but God's voice was not in the wind. And then this great earthquake happens, but God's voice wasn't in the earthquake. And then this fire, and they're getting kind of more and more like, you remember this? This kind of seemed to happen in Exodus. So that definitely, you know, these things happen. They're like, that happened in Exodus, and it just kind of happened like yesterday or 40 day, 41 days ago, God answering with fire, right? That was actually the one who answers by fire is God, you know? So when the fire was like, well, that's definitely God. And it's like, no, it's not. So here's the thing with this. <clears throat> and then the small voice, the quiet voice, the whisper, that's when God's actually speaking. When you're in these moments of despair, what did I do wrong? You, know, you look for something like that again to get back to where you were. I need this again. Show me that fire again. Do this thing again. And specifically listed are things you would expect if you were him. Or I've done this. I, I felt good with God when this was happening. I need this again. And then you actually encounter that again, and it's like still nothing, right? 
And then this nothing voice is where God's at. That doesn't mean, the main, main thing to take away from this is to hear the voice of God wherever he chooses to speak. And it's probably not going to be what you expect. Again, that sounds unsettling to some of us. You're like, well, I, well it was fire last time. Was it? Was it, wouldn't we always be guessing? Kind of, yeah, a little. But the point is, if you can make it all up, you ever seen like that movie Inception and like they're kind of stuck in their own dreams and stuff and it's like kind of real but then kind of not real because if I can, you can like go in my brain and I could make all this up and it's real enough to feel real but then there's little things like that seems off, you know. Like this person, I like James and I known each other for a while so the dream James and my, you know, he acts mostly like him but he doesn't do anything unexpected to me because that's in my own head. If God's only ever speaking to you in ways you can imagine and invent yourself, there's a good chance it's not God, or at least not totally him. You're kind of filtering it in a weird way that might completely transform what he's saying, you see? So when God speaks in unexpected ways, that's a good way to get your attention, okay? And he'll do that. And in this case, I think maybe, I don't know what he needed to say to Elijah, something that like, you know, you don't need all of this. This doesn't, like... When the fire's there, that doesn't just, pr- like, okay, well, he's doing the fire thing again. That means God's still God. He's like, I'm God whether I do the fire thing or not. You know, sometimes that stuff's just to be nice to you. Or, like, you just need to know, you know, I'm communicating with you in some way. But he, now he's communicating with his still voice, and it's confident. If you notice, God doesn't spend much time debating people, you know. And Jesus doesn't really, I mean, Jesus engages with people, and he loves people, and he cares about people, but he declares things. You know, it's a different type of talk, you know. And you see that in this conversation with Elijah. Where, um, and so, uh, and this quiet voice, you see this in Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves to a sea. He hushed, which is this communication of like, sometimes we start to freak out in this down, these places, and we want to see something dramatic to match our dramatic attitude and God's like, we need, to calm, we need to bring it down a little bit, you know. And Jesus does this, which is like, all these things start to tie together. You start to see Jesus, when the disciples are like, we're dying. Like they're out on a boat by themselves at night. They're, just, they're sinking. Everything's going, it's a terrible storm. And then Jesus shows up walking on the water, which is unsettling. It, they don't go, oh, good, Jesus is here. They're like, oh, no, what's this? Like, bad to worse. And they're like, no, no, I think that's Jesus. And then he gets in the boat and tells, it, tells the waves to stop and stuff, you know, and... Uh, it's, and there's another one where he's just asleep in the boat. There's like these stories where like they're like, don't you even care that the boat we're in is about to sink? And Jesus is like asleep. And Jesus does care. Like that's his nature is to care about everything. You know, he tells him like, God, we even, uh, God, I know, we know how many hairs you have on your head. You know, you don't even know that. That's how much God cares. If he dresses the lilies in beauty and splendor, how much more does he love you? That's quoting Jesus now. No. So this whole idea that he doesn't care is like obviously he cares and he's in the boat with them and then the boat's like there's storm all around storm all around they're like wait don't you even care that we're seeking (laughs) i mean have y'all ever said these kind of things to god is it just y'all y'all are all quiet and pretend like oh it's easy for me but they actually say to jesus and then he's like yeah of course i can but then he just tells the waves to stop there's all kind of tying back to this thing you know the storm of our lives is Seems like a big deal to us. And it is a big deal. Like without Jesus, the storm's a big deal. But when you got Jesus in the boat, if he's asleep, you probably could be asleep. Yeah. Even in the storm. 
Like, remember, Jesus is asleep during the storm. You're like, what are you waking me up for? Oh, just that, you know? And you're like, gosh, I thought, I, was, I thought it was a big deal. He's like, oh, I mean, maybe to you, but forget who's in the boat with you. We often forget who's in the boat with her. And then here's the other thing, the last thing. He tells Elijah there's others. He's like, I'm, he's, like he's repeatedly, I'm, they killed all the prophets, and I'm the only one left. It's just me. This is the enemy loves to like lie to us to get us to be feeling like we're all by ourselves. Nobody knows what I've been through. Nobody gets it. I'm the only one who really gets it. You know, these other people, they try, but they don't get it. They really don't know what's and then you can get to really despair to where you start to feel very alone. And that's kinda like you see like these nature videos that were like the the I don't know, jackals or something. They'll like go to a whole group of some sort of herding animal and then they'll try to get like a weak one and like pull it off by itself because that way he's unprotected and then they can like devour him or whatever. And that's how the enemy functions, you know, to get you to think you're all by yourself. There's no one left. It's just me. It's just me. And this is such an important thing because uh, this should be such a huge encouragement God says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000. Now, if you were at the bottom of the bottom, like Elijah, well, he's like, man, I don't even want to be alive anymore. There's no point. They're going to kill me. I'm the only one left. And then you tell God, who's a you know, God, you can want to, God is, you know, what are you doing? What? He's like, I'm the only one left. And then he asks you again, what are you doing? You're like, I'm the only one. Like, the only one. Don't you care that we're sinking? Don't you care that we're... Like, I'm the only one left. Don't you even care about any of this? And God's like... (laughs) I got 7,000 people. 7,000. He didn't even go, like, 50. Like, 50 would be... Jesus has 12 disciples. He's like, I got 12 guys. I got 12, you know? He's like, I got 7,000. Which back then, there weren't as many, you know what I mean? That's a lot of folks, you know? I don't know how many, like, percentage of the human race that was alive at that point. I don't know. But it's, it's, he's like, in Israel, of the, of the people in the kingdom, I got 7,000 that are ready to go right now. Really? Isaiah 53.3 says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of, sor- a man of suffering and familiar with pain. We're acquainted with grief, some translations say. That's Isaiah the prophet. He's talking about Jesus coming years, years later. When John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I thought of this psalm this week, Psalm 34, and this verse, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. And the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So he tells Elijah, I got 7,000 people. First thing that you need to hear is that we have each other. We have each other. Like he'd be like, there's 7,000 guys ready to go right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's others, really? <laughs> okay, cool, you know? We ha- and that's kind of what the church is like. It's like, you think you're all by yourself. Especially like late at night, you're worried about your life. 
You think you're all by yourself. Nobody else even cares. They do. We do. We do care. And reach out to somebody. Like, get somebody's phone number and text them. Say, I need prayer. Why? Because I'm going through it right now. I've got you. And then pray for them. And God does things, right? That's just the first step. I mean, it goes on from that. You know what I mean? Not to minimize prayer, but I'm just saying we have each other. And God wants us to live that way. That's the body of Christ functioning together, okay? And then the last thing that you really need to hear from this, and the 7,000, God's saying, I've got 7,000 people. They've not, they've not bound to Baal at all, you know, or kissed them. They're like you, you know, that God is with them. That we have each other, and we also have Jesus. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a verse. That Jesus, that God loved you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That changes the whole situation. That's the whole boat. That's the whole everything. All the other stuff still matters, but it matters like infinitesimally less than that. And that's how you get through all of that with each other. And so I think some of us today just need encouragement. It's going to be all right, guys. And it's all right to be discouraged. Elijah was discouraged. Not discouraged because he's, you know, even ruined everything. He'd done exactly, like, we talk about a prophet. He's like, do what God tells you to do, you know. And he'd done that. And then he felt the discouragement that comes from the reaction from it. So you're going to seek, you're going to encounter that too. But you need to reach out to the 7,000 other people around you. And they do exist. And if you don't think they exist, come talk to me and we'll, we'll, I'll start to help you find them because they do exist. And, and, and that's how, through what Jesus has done and invited us all to follow him to this eternal life, how we can be more radically devoted than even these guys that we're seeing here. Not to say we're better than them, because we're not. You know, no one's better than anybody. But that what Jesus has done for us allows us to live this, this life. And so I just want to pray for us all. And we do have prayer ministers back in the corner by the maps if you need prayer. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Kayla's going to sing a song, and then we'll pray to bless the food. Um, but I want to pray for us now, just really quick, that um, for encouragement. If you feel discouraged, if you've been feeling discouraged, if you've been feeling overwhelmed and discouraged, I want to tell you first, that's okay. Okay, We all go through that kind of thing. Even to the point, it's important that you see in this that he's literally praying to God, the same God who just did incredible fire things, just go ahead and kill me because there's no point for me to even live anymore. That's pretty low. Remember high point? Now we're at a very low point. Some of you have felt exactly the same way. And the first trick of the enemy is to get you to feel that way. And the second trick is to get you to feel like you can't admit this to anybody because no one else feels this way. And you're supposed to be a Christian. I mean, you're not, it's okay for bad people to be like, you know, people who follow Jesus or whatever. You can't ever feel like that. These are lies of the enemy. This is Elijah we're talking about. This Elijah the prophet, the one who shows up to talk to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, felt this way. So don't let the enemy win by telling you, if you feel that way, first off, it's your fault. Second off, you can't tell anybody about it. And third off, there's no hope or help for you. 
because it's not true. And the third thing is I want to pray that the empowerment of the Holy Spirit flows into your life in ways that are transformative, both now and for all eternity. So let's just stand. I want to pray for us as we stand. And then maybe sometimes we just, if you put your hands out like this, like somebody's handing you something, like you're receiving a gift, you know, I'm going to pray that God would give us this gift of healing and restoration in these areas of our lives. And then I'll have Kayla sing. We can sing along with her. So, Father, we just come to you broken people. We are broken people. We've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We've all experienced brokenness. We've all even experienced just desperation, even not due to just to our sin, but just because the world is against you. Even living for you, Lord, we've come to the bottom at times. Lord, some of us in this room are extremely despairing and extremely discouraged, Lord, just like Elijah. And we would even say, just take us, Lord, because there's no even point anymore. And nobody gets it. Nobody even cares anymore. I'm the only one left. And so, Lord, I pray that to those hearts specifically, but to all of us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in this place. That you would come as a comforter, that you say you are near to the brokenhearted. That psalm we read, that you are near to the brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted in this room. And that you would save those that are crushed in spirit. So, Lord, we receive your salvation. We receive your saving. And Lord, I pray that like Elijah, that you would send us on with what we are to do, but also, Lord, with your spirit within us. And I pray that there would be transformation in our lives. No more despairing in Jesus' name. No more loneliness. No more utter brokenness where you have to say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Lord, come fill our hearts. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit. And during this song, Lord, I pray that you would touch each and every one of us, and we receive from you, Lord, this gift of your grace that you pour out on us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can